Good morning. Welcome to worship here at Springfield Church of the Brethren. It is Sunday, January the 8th. Um, though we aren't, aren't celebrating it in worship today, today is also Epiphany Sunday, so I'm sorry to say that we are officially out of the Christmas season. So I hope you have put your 10 lords a-leaping and your 11 maids a-dancing or whatever all back in their closet for the year as we, as we enter normal time. Our scripture today comes from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Though I know you probably all know this story. On the third day of a wedding, I'm sorry, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, Have they no more wine? Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not come yet. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. He told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the wine that had been turned into, tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Every brings out the choice wine first and then the cheap wine after. The guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee and thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Blessed is the word. Uh, so in... So the, the house I grew up in at camp, there was a basement bathroom, and it was, it was a scary bathroom. Um, I mean, it wasn't very nice. It had a really old shower in it that had rust in places. Um, and you, you went in, before you went in, you had to go around to the side, and you had to turn on the water to the shower, because we left it off when it wasn't in use, because it leaked terribly. My parents have since redid it before they moved out. It always smelled of mold and stuff. But it was the bathroom we used a lot as kids because we hung out in the basement a lot. Because it was one really large room, and we just played down there all the time. And in that bathroom was an old three-legged table. It was probably something my parents picked up for cheap when they first got an apartment. Um, or when they first got their first house back in Indiana. You know, the kind of thing that you get because you just need a table, but you know you're never going to keep it long for anything important. Like, I think it was like literally a couple dowel rods that somebody had put threads on and a piece of plywood. And it was in the center was where the three, the three lakes connected. Now, 
three-legged tables, stools, whatnot. You know, the, the reason that you know the traditional milking stool is three-legged is that because three-legged stools or anything will always find a plane. That is, they will always make a one-dimensional line between all the legs. It will not wobble a three-leg unless there's something wrong with the, the seat itself. But a three-legged stool will not wobble because all three legs are firmly on the ground, unlike a four-legged one. So if you're in an uneven ground, say in a barn, it won't wobble under you. I'm saying this, I'm having a guy over here who milks cow for a living looking at me, and I'm saying, I'm hoping I'm mostly right about this. I remember being taught this in geometry or something. Anyway. However, the problem with three-legged things, like three-legged, like three-wheeled cars or this three-legged table, is that they're also inherently unstable. They have a tendency to tip. And one of my favorite uh, shows growing up for a long time was, uh, was uh, Top Gear, a British cars show. And they had one episode where they just test drove this old three-legged car or three-wheeled car, and like half the episode was him taking a corner at a reasonable speed and ending up on his side. Thankfully, the car was pretty light, and so it just took a couple guys to flip it back. But it was like this table, this table in the bathroom, which held hardly anything, but almost always had a bowl of potpourri in the middle, was very unstable, not only because it was three-legged, but because the three legs attached in the middle, making it super unstable. So if you did anything, put any weight along certain sections of the edge, you know, in between where the legs came down from, you had a tendency to flip the table and have potpourri all over the carpet. Also, carpets and bathrooms just don't mix super well. Just putting that out there, especially with potpourri. And oddly enough, though, and I know this is going to be another Sunday where I talk about numbers, forgive me. You know, last week I talked about seven. I'm going to talk about seven again probably at some point, but I'm going to talk first about three. Three, of course, is a number that's extremely sacred in ancient Judaism, and that has continued into Christianity. When we think of three, we think of the Trinity and how God in the form of the Trinity is in perfect balance with God's self. And yet, I can tell you, you know, I think about three and three-legged things. They are not in balance. And that's why there's actually a bit of a difference and three is, represents balance and completion, but it represents kind of a divine, a holy balance, the kind of balance that is achieved by God. But when you want completion and balance and strength on the human world, three is not the number you go with. We go with four. There's a reason why most chairs, tables, stools, cars have four wheels, four legs. Four, whatever. Four is on earth much more stable. The human world is often put into groups of four. And that is how John approaches these next two sections of his gospel. He, he's going to lay out four important institutions and four important celebrations and show how Jesus is involved with them. So we're going to, the first section is the four important institutions. He's going to go to a wedding. He's going to go to the temple. He's going to meet with a rabbi. 
And now I forget what the fourth one is. That is terrible. Oh, and then he's going to meet with somebody at the well. And, that, and another way to look at this is four pillars of ancient Jewish society. What are they? They are the home, the family. They are the temple, the, the religious system. They are the rabbis, the educational system. And it is the town square, the well, where all people come together and meet as a community. This doesn't sound too terribly different than our world, right? I mean, you may add or remove certain ones, depending on your life, but those continue to be important pillars of our society. Now, the other four are going to be celebrations, and there'll be Passover, Sabbath, Passover, Hanukkah, though this, it's the rededication of the temple. It won't become Hanukkah until later. Um, and, and the, um, um, the, I forget what the other feast day is, and that's not important. We'll come to it when it comes to that. So, where we are on the first one, the wedding. And it is interesting that Jesus starts here at a wedding, and he doesn't even want to start there. We'll come to that. Okay, so wedding. Now, in ancient Jewish culture, weddings were a little more complex. You had a period in which you would have been engaged, which we have in this world, but you know, it's not exactly like I would, you know, you know, I, 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 I met a girl, her name was Lauren, we dated for a while, then I asked her to marry me, and then we were engaged for a while, and then we got married. And more likely than not, you know, I would have either, when I was entering my last years of childhood, my father, who I had been training under, and my mother would have looked around and found someone that was an appropriate match for me, and then we would have become engaged. And though we were not married, that engagement is kind of considered the same as marriage in terms of how everyone looked at it. It was, you, you're, you're everything but living together at this point. You know, you you're still living your separate lives, and more than likely your, your wife-to-be, if you're a guy, is several years younger than you, and you're like 15. So your wife is, you're engaged like 12 or 11. Anyway, so anyway, you're, you're, you're still living at home with your parents. She's living at home with her parents. You're building yourself up so that you can have your own home. And then eventually you are ready to get married officially because you now have enough money to support your wife. This is 100% from the male's perspective still here. And she's probably hit about 15 or 16 as well. And so you guys have a wedding. And more likely than not, after the wedding happens and the wedding night, she goes back and she lives with her parents for a little longer. And eventually you got them together. So it's been a long process. You haven't had a lot of say in it. But this is the beginning of the formation of your new family. Eventually, you as the son will move out of your parents' house or move to the side of their house. Um, and, and you will start your own family. And eventually, your you will become the patriarch of the family if you're the head male. It isn't about love necessarily. Love was something that came with time. 
This isn't unusual in, in ancient cultures. You know, the Greeks actually thought that love, as in what we would call you know, romantic love today, and they would call it infatuation. They thought it was a disease that you would eventually get over. But the idea is that you would be married to somebody and you would eventually grow to have a deep love for them as time passed. So it's not a celebration of love, it's a celebration of new family forming. And that's the important thing, because families are the most basic unit in that culture, just as it continues to be in our world today. How do we often associate ourselves? We talk about our families, who your parents were, if you're married, who your spouse is, who your kids are. That's how we center ourselves. Start with the nuclear family, then you go to the extended family, and then you go to, to your community, the organizations you belong to, like the church or school or your business, and then you go out to the geographic community and then your state and nation. You know, that's how we align our lives. And in the middle are those that we call family. So Jesus is at a party. We have no idea whose party it is. Some even argue it's actually John's wedding. John is getting married. Some have argued throughout history that it's Jesus' wedding, which is unusual. But you have people out there arguing. We have no idea, though. He's at this wedding, and they run out of wine. This is a bad thing in his day era where people don't generally drink water because it's got typhus and stuff in it. No, who wants to drink typhus water? No? No? E. coli? I can tell you it's really fun. No, it's not. You know, no one drinks the water. You know, they all drink, for the most part, wine and beer. Because it was safe. That's part of the fermentation process. You got all those little yeast hanging out in there, and they're killing all the bacteria off. And so that's what's safe to drink. And so that's what they are all drinking, and they're having a party, and the wine runs out. Well, what do you do if you have no wine? It means you can't eat, at least to me. I'm, I'm a kind of person who, when I go to most any place and I get myself, especially an iced tea, I can put away five or six iced teas at one meal. I'm the kind of guy who has to keep waving down the waitress at like a Bob Evans, be like, I need more. They're like, I just got you some... Give me a picture. You know, it, it's reached a point where there's no wine left. How can you have a party? And this party, this wedding would have taken days. So, Mary, whoever's wedding it is, Mary is concerned for the reputation of the bridegroom and the bride, and for the host, the, who's probably the father of the, of the, of the groom, you know worried about their reputation. And so he, she reaches over and she grabs Jesus and says, do this thing. And, and Jesus is like, it's not my time. And she, she doesn't listen to her son. This sounds like so many mothers I've known. I know one mother at least. Who, anyway, ignore what he said and do what I say. And what I say is listen to what he says. And so Jesus, being a good son, says, okay, I'll do what my mom asked me, and I'll do something. And 
And he tells them to fill these big old jars up. And have you ever carried 20, 30 gallons worth of water? That's an immense amount of weight in stone jars. So they go and they fill these jars, and Jesus goes, zip, zap, zoop, and it turns to wine. <coughs> now, there's just so many levels of symbolism in here. Consider this. Here is a new married couple. And I mean, imagine how it, it would look on any modern-day wedding, where everything seems to be going right, and then there's a big disaster in it. You know, the, the caterers forgot to come or didn't produce enough food. Or the, the pastor's up there doing a solemn ceremony and accidentally slips in the word dookie, which I've done here. You know, uh, it, it's the way that we look at it today, even was been similar to back then. If something terrible happened during the wedding time, it would have reflected as bad luck upon the couple. People would have talked about how this would have been an unhappy marriage, how, you know, children, children are the main purpose of marriage in this day, how they wouldn't be able to have children, or their children would be sickly or something, you know, or that... That, that he would fail in business, or that she would die young, or he would die young. You know, this is bad news. They have how going to have bad luck. And we know that because the wedding is a disaster because they ran out of wine. And Jesus changes that. Think about what that means in a modern context. You know, suddenly it is saying, good luck. All those problems you considered are now gone. It's just like in our lives, you know, we, I was young once. I had as much energy as Grace. No, probably not. No one has as much energy as Grace, even as a four-year-old or a five-year-old. But one time I was young, and I was full of energy, and I was full of drive, and I would get in arguments with with teachers, and, and I, I've, I've always been a pretty, not very angry person, but, you know, I, I had more drive to be that kind of person. And how many of you think back in your lives, you know, the kind of things you did as you left high school, if you went to college or not, you know, that you were more involved, you know, you got, my, my dad, when he got out of, of college, he went and he taught for a year up in Cleveland, and he was gung-ho and excited to be a math teacher, and he joined the union, and they made him like vice president or something, and he burnt out within the year. <laughs> like, it was a terrible situation, and it burned him bad. And I've done that in my own life. I think we've all done that, you know, where we realize that that we aren't who we were 20 years ago. That maybe we're a little slower in movement, slower in thought. Maybe we're less likely to get quite as angry or upset. That maybe, maybe we're a little more accepting of wiggle room in life. It doesn't have to be perfectly square. If it's 89 degrees, it's close enough. But 
But when Jesus comes into our lives, just as Jesus came into this marriage, it's rejuvenated. But it's not just rejuvenated. When Jesus comes into the, the wedding and fixes it, he makes it better than it originally was. He makes the feast better than it was when it began. When we invite Jesus into our lives, when we invite Christ to take charge, to demand something that seems weird, like filling up, like, what was it, a, like six jars, 30 gallons apiece, so we're, we're talking 180 gallons of water, that's a lot of wine. I hadn't done the math before. Wow. You know, filling up 180 gallons worth of water there and there's the... You know, they do something extraordinary and dumb seeming that Jesus transforms it into something great and by doing so rejuvenates us. And a reminder that in our relationships, they may be really good. You know, I've been with Lauren, I'm 36. We've been together 18 years. We met when we were 18, I'm 36. That's how I'm doing that math. Um... We, we've been together for 18 years, and that relationship has changed. It's transformed. It's still really good. But you know what? It's not the same. I'm guessing, you know, I've had people here who have been married a lot longer than that. I'm guessing, right? A few, few of you have kids who are at least 18 or older. Some of you have grandkids who are 18 or older. Um, anyway, but I don't think our relationship would have been so good and have lasted so long if we didn't share that core value, that core value that, that comes from Christ, who is Christ, of love, of forgiveness, of, of asking for repentance when we are doing something wrong, of believing that there's something bigger and better out there, and working for it together as partners. Now, this isn't a message just for those who are in relationships. It's a message for all of us that, yes, our, our, our lives have a core group, a family group, whether that's by marriage or by blood or through people we have met and formed a family around ourselves. But that core group only lasts and grows when we keep Christ at the center of it. As we keep Christ in the center of our hearts, Christ needs to be the center of our relationships. And when we do so, we find that it's even better than when it started. So keep Christ there. Let Christ take your disasters, turn them into miracles. Let Christ take that which seems like it could be bad luck or could just simply be waning as life does often wane and rejuvenate it. Except it's not really rejuvenating. Rejuvenation gives you the idea that it just brings it back to where it was. It's rejuvenating and then renewing it into something even better. Keep Christ at your center. For where Christ will bring you is better than where you even started. Thank you.
This seems so intuitive in a church setting, but I will remind you to keep Christ at the center of your lives and at the center of your relationships. That I know that isn't always easy and that at times we will fight and bicker with those who we love most, but that remember to forgive, to repent, to strive for better. For Christ's first miracle, the first place that Christ came to somebody and changed their lives was when a new family was coming together. He continues to do so for those who have been together for a long time, even if it's been 18 years or more. So, go out and be rejuvenated and renewed in your relationship as you remember the one who turns the water into wine in our lives. Amen.